This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Jeff Lowenfels. And Jeff hosted uh, Alaska's public television's most popular radio uh, show, Alaska Gardens, with Jeff Lowenfels. And it ran for four times a week, and even in Barrow, way above the Arctic Circle. Today, Jeff hosts a popular weekly garden show and is author of three books, or two books and one on the way. And he's past president of all sorts of things, including the Garden Writers Association, and as an award-winning author and just a heck of a nice person. Jeff, welcome. That's how that for a long introduction. Nice <laughs> well, that was pretty pretty nice, longer than I normally get, <laughs> and nicer than I normally get. Good. Jeff, how did you get into gardening? Well, my father was a gardener, and if, if you wanted to spend time with my father, you went out and worked in the garden. And so my earliest memories, picking vegetables and rototilling and doing all those fun things uh, in Scarsdale, New York, on an eight-acre hobby farm. <laughs> That's a lot of hoeing and tilling, isn't it? Yeah, there were three sons. We were the indentured servants, and we worked all <laughs> the time. I think I, I think we were the only people in Scarsdale who grew their own food, and we did. We had ducks and chickens, and we had a horse, and oh my God, acres and acres, eighty apple trees and cherries and peaches, and whew, we oh, had a big farm. Yeah. How wonderful! How wonderful! Yeah. Well, now, how did you get from Scarsdale, New York, to Anchorage, Alaska? It is a very long way. I I went to law school because I wasn't smart enough to become a doctor. And uh, while I was in law school, I got in Boston. I got held up and shot. And I was with a lovely lady who saved my life because she was a nurse. And the next morning in the hospital, I proposed to her. But I added a little caveat that if she was going to marry me, we were going to go to Alaska. (laughs) <laughs> as far away as we could go without a passport. And she said yes. And so that's how I ended up in Alaska. I got held up and shot, and I ran away. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way, good place to go if you're going to get shot, I guess. Uh, in Alaska, you can carry your own gun and protect yourself, well, right? Not not me, although i got to say, the first week I got up there, I was cross-country skiing, and I, I skied off top of a hill, and I ran into a guy with a, with, a, with a gun, and I went, oh, my God, what have I done? But it turned out to be okay. And 40 years later, you know, I'm, uh, I've been writing a garden column now for 39 years, never missed a week. I've got two great kids and a wonderful, wonderful spouse. So something good comes out of anything bad. That's my motto. Well, that's good. Now, do you actually garden up there in Anchorage? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we used to tell people we, we grew snowball cauliflower, iceberg lettuce, and snow peas. You know, that was our joke. <laughs> but, uh, but in fact, we have uh, quite a growing season. It's about 100 and, oh, it's probably about 140 days now. Uh, it was 127 days when I arrived in Anchorage, but now it's 140 days because we've got global warming. Uh, and uh, i got to tell you, we grow everything except, uh, you know, let's see here. What are those southern things that you guys grow that we can't grow? Not turnips. Uh, okra. We can't grow okra. But we, but we can grow anything else. Now, do you have to make special preparations for it? Do you have to start everything out in cold frames and or well, we you grow in a greenhouse? 
Yeah, we start them in the indoors. Uh, most Alaskans either buy their starts or we start them indoors starting in, well, celery, celery we start in February. <laughs> you got to really want celery to do that because uh, the planting out season isn't until about May 20th. So we start all sorts of stuff indoors. Uh, we plant May 20th, most of the stuff we put outside, but uh, we put some stuff out earlier, as you, as you can imagine, that like, like the cold, like uh, snap peas and uh, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's an it's a arduous indoor process followed by an arduous outdoor process. I don't know that gardening is uh, arduous unless you're, unless you're doing something wrong. Well, you know, I would say you're right, except for the fact that uh, indoors in Anchorage or in anywhere in Alaska, it's very warm. We got heat on all the time. Uh, it's it 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 can be it can be really problematic. You know, I watered the plants. No, no, I watered them. We both, uh, you know, it's just because everybody goes nuts about plants. Come around February, you, you're a little bit stir crazy. <laughs> I so, bet you. So, yeah, you know, people buy too much. They plant too many. Uh, it's it's really quite a quite a quite a scene. Well, I, I think most gardeners are like that. I know I, if I start looking at the seed catalog, I can put a world of hurt on a credit card in ten minutes. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And of course, we we do that. I mean, our our major form of reading is gardeners uh, in January. <laughs> we're we're on the computer looking at all the web webologs and looking at the seed catalogs and can, can't wait for the nurseries to open up so we can wander around and uh, we're we're garden crazy up in Anchorage, no question about it. Now I've seen some of your cabbages up in Anchorage. Tell people about those. Well, you know that used to be the uh, that used to be the thing that people knew knew about Alaska that we grew these big gigantic cabbages out in the Matanuska Valley, which is which is where Wasilla is, which is where Sarah Palin, you know, did, didn't see uh, Russia. But uh, it has a very special soil there. Uh, it's a very special kind of humus in a, about a six inch layer, and uh, that humus contains so much microbiology that the cabbages just take off. And it turns out that not only the cabbages take off, but anything you plant in this particular kind of soil, it does better. So pumpkins, we now have world record pumpkins up in Alaska. Uh, we've got all sorts of things that just do gigantic. The biggest cabbage I've seen, I think, was 126 pounds. That's a big cabbage. <laughs> that, is a, that is a huge cabbage. Now, how tall was that? Well, that was about, about, about six feet across and about oh, three feet high. <laughs> you know, but not, but not as big as the seventeen hundred pound pumpkin that I saw. Uh, oh my! Uh, but again, it's the soil. Uh, we 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 have uh, always thought it was the sunlight, and then we suddenly realized, wait a second, Anchorage is about thirty five minutes away from the area that has the soil, and we cannot grow the same size vegetables unless we get the soil. And in Anchorage, they removed this soil because it's eighty feet thick and you can't build on it because you have earthquakes. And so we don't have that layer of soil unless we go and get it. But when we do, we grow big vegetables. That's Which really a, interesting. I thought it I always thought it was just that you had such a long, you know, long daylight hours in the summertime. Ah, yeah, you see we all did, but this is a great segue into teeming with microbes because it's the microbial life in that six inch layer of soil that feeds those plants such tremendous amounts of nutrients that enables them to grow so big. It's not the sunlight. That's Isn't cool. that amazing? Yeah. 
That is cool. Now, what is special about those microbes? Are they a different kind, or is just that there are many more of them? Or, both, or tell both. me about yeah. it. In this particular instance, we're dealing with a, with a, a humus soil. This is actually humus, so it's the end, end product of 10,000 years of composting. And at the end of that process, this particular material is a condominium for about 35,000 different kinds of bacteria and about 15,000 different kinds of fungi. These are very high numbers, and, and they're so high, in fact, that people have looked at the soil and said they've never seen higher numbers of, of microbes in soil any place other than perhaps in, in, in Siberia where the stuff is frozen in the tundra. But it's incredible how much microbiology is in the soil. And that is the basis of how plants feed themselves, the microbiology. Now, you mentioned that this is, you've got, well, you've got way more microbes in this particular soil than you do in regular soil. Just for contrast, right. do you know about how much is in, in like a regular Regular well, let's pasture land or something? Yeah, some, well, let's not do pasture. Let's use, let's use good compost because that's what people should be using in their gardens. And good compost usually contains, oh, maybe 20,000 different kinds of bacteria, maybe uh, 10,000, 7,000 different kinds of fungi. This particular soil up, up, up north there is just spectacular because it's never been disturbed. And, and, uh, and, and it's had all of these summers of warmth and then winters. You get tremendous micro, microbiology activity even in the winter. Uh, and, and so it's broken down to the point where the, where the material that the microbiology is in is actually humus. This is, as I say, the end product of compost. It doesn't really degrade anymore. And it's, so it's just an unbelievable condominium. Uh, it's, it's, it's like biochar plus for all of these wonderful microbes. And, and what happens? Oh, do we need to take a break here? No. We're, we're, we're oh, good to go I'm, for a couple more minutes. I thought I heard a little squeal there. but uh, So what happens is the plants drip out exudates from their roots. Sweat is what we drip out. That's our exudate. But plants drip out carbons, and these carbons attract bacteria and fungi to the root zone because they need carbon. And so they eat that carbon, and then they in turn get eaten, and they get eaten by, by, by uh, organisms that also need carbon, but they don't need all the other things that are in the fungi and bacteria that they eat. They poop out the excess, and that excess contains all sorts of nutrient-rich uh, items which the plant can then take up and use. And so the plant is actually feeding itself by attracting the bacteria and fungi. They attract protozoa and nematodes that do the eating and the pooping and the plant is in a wonderful situation to continue to attract these things as long as it has sunlight so it can produce carbon. What a great system. That is fascinating. But and that's how every plant it, grows. Uh, what about plants that are growing in, you know, like pretty much sterile potting compost or potting, not potting, not compost, but medium? Well, they're, they're putting out exudates, but they're probably not attracting the microbes, obviously, because it's sterile. So what happens is either the plant dies or you have to come in and supply it with nutrients. Now, the opposite works the same way. If you have a pot that has good microbiology in it and you're continually putting in chemical fertilizers, those chemical fertilizers start to kill off the microbes, and eventually what you end up with is a microbial poor pot of soil and a plant that doesn't do well. So you have to continually fertilize it. 
when you have the good microbes in the soil and you feed those microbes instead of killing them off, they will continually feed your plant and it just makes the system work so much easier and it's organic, which is, of course, what we want to be. Is there any particular fertilizer that's worse than others or are they all bad, all the chemical well, fertilizers? Well, the chemical fertilizers with numbers above, you know, they have the trilogy on the package. It's usually, you know, a 10, 10, 10 or a 5, 4, 7 or whatever. Uh, any numbers above 12, 12, 12 really, really are destructive when it comes to one particular kind of microbe, and that's the mycorrhizal fungi that feed plants. And so when you start to kill those off, you really have some serious, serious problems. So anything over 12, 12, 12, uh, but even, even the ones that are below 12, 12, 12 really should be natural, organic, not chemical, because uh, uh, you don't want to kill any of these microbes if you can help it. You want to feed them all, what you want to do. So. Now, we're going to have to take a little bit of a break here, but mm-hmm. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we're going to be back talking gardening with Jeff Lowenfels after, right after this. We'll be right back. This is Denise Simon, 18 hours a day. I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Jeff Lowenfels, and his first book was Teeming with Microbes, um, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web. Now, Jeff, tell me about this, and we're, we're talking about microbes. How did you get interested in microbes? <laughs> well, it's an interesting uh, story. Uh, I actually had some people come to my office. Uh, I was involved in a big transportation project, and when you, when you produce things in Alaska, Transportation is the key factor because it costs a lot to ship things out. And they had discovered this particular human soil that we were just talking about uh, existed, and they wanted to sell it in the lower 48 states. And so I did a tremendous amount of research on it and was blown away by what I discovered because I had been writing a garden column at that time for 25 years, every single week, never missed a week, and I had no idea how plants really grew. And, and so when these guys came in and told me about this high microbiology in the soil, I needed to find out what was going on. Uh, I was a miracle grow guy. And uh, the research that I did resulted in a complete changeover from a chemical head to one of the, I would like to say, one of the most ardent organic 
gardeners in the country. Uh, and, and what I discovered was, in fact, that these plants attract their own food by dripping out these exudates, and that when we apply chemical fertilizers, we disrupt that system. And it, get, it gets to the point where when we apply chemical fertilizers, we're not only killing off microbes, we're also making the plant lazy because the plant says, gee, if I'm getting free nitrogen, I don't have to produce the exudate that attracts the bacteria that's going to get eaten that's going to give me that nitrogen. And so it stops. And so you have to continually feed the plant or it's not going to do well. That is work. <laughs> so what I discovered was certain plants like bacteria in their soil dominated and certain plants like fungally dominated soils because what eats bacteria produces one kind of nitrogen. What eats fungus produces a different kind of nitrogen. These two kinds of nitrogen both can be used by plants, but plants like one kind of nitrogen over the other kind of nitrogen. And some plants like nitrates, and some plants like ammonium. So there's two kinds of nitrogen. And so all of this stuff is explained in the book. I know it sounds very complicated, but it is a very simple, elegant system where the plant is in control, and that is a real eye-opener for most gardeners. Yeah, we always think of things under our feet as just kind of inert, but there's just yeah. an amazing yeah. amount of life there. I remember being um, in a conference, and they were just discussing, the NRCS had just put out the Soil Food Web book um, right. with, with Ingram's uh, research right. in it. And right. to, you know, after that, we went out and we dug into an area um, that the University of Georgia has that they had kept um, – in no-till for many, many years. And sure. here in Georgia, you know, our soils were very badly eroded originally mm -hmm. because of the cotton growing. You know, cotton right. uses an awful lot of nutrients, and they just cottoned and cottoned and, and then tilled and burned. And uh, mm -hmm. so there was, you know, we have essentially no topsoil in a lot of the right. area. And in this pasture where they had not tilled and not done anything except kept it in cover, um, the soil was almost three feet deep. And when you open the soil up, you could just smell it. Yep. And it what you're smelling wonderful. there, right, that smell is a very particular uh, actinomycetes. It's a kind of bacteria, and it produces a, a product called geosin, and that's what gives soil its smell. So the stuff you saw, that three feet, contained worms and all sorts of, uh, of items you could see. But a teaspoon of that soil probably contained about a billion bacteria, and probably about 15 feet of invisible fungal hyphae. That's an incredible number of things to have in a little teaspoon of soil. Not to mention the amoebas and the protozoa and the nematodes, all of the things that are in the soil, the soil food web. And it's the little guys that eat the bigger guys that eat the bigger guys, but all of them are attracted to the root zone ultimately by these exudates that the plant produces. And it doesn't matter whether it's a redwood or whether it's a, you know, cotton plant or a corn stalk, all plants operate the same way. And until 1996, and the Lane Ingham, basically, most gardeners had no idea. When you picked up a Rodale organic gardening book, it never mentioned bacteria or fungus. <laughs> you know, but that's what makes the system run. And so the things that we do in the garden should all be done to foster their life, 
So rototilling, for example, a very bad thing to do. Rototilling breaks up the fungal hyphal network that runs out throughout your garden that actually gives soil structure. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to do. And people should not rototill other than the first time that they they put in a garden. Uh, There are all sorts of little tricks that you can pick up as a result of teaming with microbes that will make you a better gardener. But the most important thing about the book, it will make you understand how your plants are growing, which is really, really important to know. Now, what about people that have been tilling for years and years? Do they have any hope? They have hope. I was a tiller. Uh, I loved to go to till. One of my favorite things to do. I had two rototillers, not just one, but two. Uh, I grew up with a, I grew up with a, uh, you know, 360 horsepower Troy that was built in 1930. Uh, I loved to rototill. It's just bad for your soil. So what you do is you stop rototilling. I mean, after all, a plant can grow through cement. We've all seen, you know, grass coming up through the sidewalk and things like that. Uh, uh, the, 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 the rototilling is not needed. You stop rototilling. Now, if you need to clear an area to plant a seed, you stick a dowel in the soil or you use your dibble. Uh, you take a two-by-four and you run it down the, the path and you make a little little uh, half-an-inch groove. You don't have to destroy the entire fungal network in order to be able to plant your plants. What if they have a lot and, of weeds, though? Well, then you use mulch. You cover those weeds up. Uh, those those weeds, uh, you know, are, are growing, and, and if you destroy the fungal network that supports them, you're going to be destroying the fungal network that also supports your plants. Now, when I say fungal network, I'm not just talking about normal fungus that runs through there. I mentioned before that there are these special fungus that the plant attracts to itself called mycorrhizal fungus. It's a hard word to pronounce, a hard word to spell, but 96% of plants on the planet Earth have a symbiotic relationship with a particular kind of fungi, these mycorrhizal fungi, and that fungi, in return for those exudates, goes out and gets the plant copper, nitrogen, zinc, and in particular, phosphorus. Phosphorus is tied up in the soil in a nanosecond chemically. And and the only way to break it out is with bacterial and fungal activity. And and when you use rototilling, you break up this mycorrhizal network that's attached to all of your roots and, and bringing food back to your plants. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to rototill. Um, if, if people are practicing crop rotation in their garden, does that mess up the, you know, you said some plants like uh, a fungal and some like yeah. bacterial. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Well, that's pretty important because uh, uh, plants, plants that like fungal uh, uh, dominance in the soil, uh, you don't want to put a bacterial plant in that soil because, A, it will do well, and B, once it starts to grow and starts to attract the bacteria, it doesn't attract the fungi, and so then the next year when you put the fungal plant in, it doesn't do as well. Now, fortunately, most vegetables like a bacterial-dominated soil, and that's good. So then what you have to be careful about is you don't want to grow plants that are allopathic to mycorrhizal fungi. Remember I said 96% of the plants like this mycorrhizal fungi and require them in order to do well. 4% don't. One of those 4% happens to be cabbage. And, and, and uh, people, people who plant cabbage end up killing the mycorrhizal fungi in their soil. So they can't then the following year just plant something that's going to require the mycorrhizal. 
Now, again, it sounds a little complicated, but it's really very, very easy. Uh, and, and, and it's so important. The reason the redwood trees grow as tall as they grow is because of the exudates they produce, the bacteria and the, and the fungus that they attract to the root zone, the protozoa and nematodes that eat those fungus and bacteria, poop out the excess, and the mycorrhizal fungi that bring food into those plants. That's how the redwoods grow. That's how your corn stalk grows. That's how your peanuts grow. Everything grows the same way. And we've, we've got to follow the soil food web and foster it in order to have the best possible gardens. Now, you said that cabbage um, it kills them off. In, in the south, and it, well, in most of temperate climate, gardeners mm-hmm. plant cabbage and kale and um, Brussels sprouts and things like that in the fall and winter. Now, right. is, that, are the, is that a problem since most bacteria and fungi aren't as active in the winter? Well, actually, or, they are. They actually are active in the winter, which is a, a, a very interesting thing. So in Alaska, for example, or in any place for that matter, uh, I, I insist that my readers do not pick up their leaves, no raking, unless you're raking for a, for a compost pile or for mulch. What we do is we run every leaf we have over with our lawnmowers, and we leave them there. And in the spring, they're all gone because the snow comes and there's a little layer of, of, of uh, above freezing temperature right between the snow level and the, and the, uh, and the lawn. And there is more microbial activity in there in the wintertime than there is in the lawn in the summertime, believe it or not. And it breaks down these leaves and provides food for the lawn, which is spectacular. So we don't rake in Alaska, and you shouldn't rake either. You should mulch your leaves up and let the soil food web take care of it. What I'm, what I'm getting at is once you start using the soil food web, once you start using the way nature normally grows plants, then gardening becomes very easy and a really delightful hobby with much less work and much less worry, which is really what we all need. <laughs> and does that work all over the country? Because I know here Absolutely. in the East we get um, leaves. Well, yes, we you know, of course I, I chop up the leaves and leave them, um, but an awful lot of them are still there in the springtime, and it's not sure. until it warms up again that yep. they decompose, and then they decompose very rapidly. Right. Well, that's because they are actually really decomposing. Even though they look like they're still leaves, they've been de- decomposing all winter long. Uh, but absolutely, yeah, worse all, every place in the country, every place in the world, like you've talked from Costa Rica, Mexico, England, uh, going to Fiji, this system is the natural system. This is how plants grow naturally. They produce exudates, they attract bacteria and fungi, the bacteria and fungi get eaten, and they are the things that eat them poop out the excess, which are nutrients that feed the plants, and you have mycorrhizal fungi. This is how plants work everywhere in the world. It's only been since World War II that we've come along and started to apply fertilizers and glyphosate and all of these things that we use uh, because we think it makes it uh, easier and better and more productive. Turns out we're finding that's not true. Uh, and so I think people who pick up a copy of Teeming with Microbes, which is fully titled Teeming with Microbes, the Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, in, in 45 minutes, you will be better and a better gardener, a better farmer than 99% of the people on the planet Earth. 
We have to take a little break right here. But Jeff, I'm fascinated, and I note that your book has been translated into four different languages, too. Seven. We'll talk Seven. about that. Yeah. Seven now. Okay. We'll yeah. talk about that right after this break. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and with me today is Jeff Lowenfels, author of Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, which won the Gold Award for Best Writing in Gardening Books in 2011. That is a high honor. Yeah, it was kind of fun. <laughs> well, and it's especially fun because um, it's reviewed by gardeners. And they're a tough yeah. audience. The gardener, oh garden writers are a tough, tough audience. They um, are. They're, they're kind of like master gardeners in that way. If, you, if a master gardener, somebody goes to talk to a master gardener group, um, and they say one thing wrong, the master gardeners are going to be on them like a duck and a June bug. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and no garden, writers, garden writers can, can be like that, too, sometimes. But to get a, the gold award for best writing in gardening books, and it was the best important new garden books for in 25 years, too. Now, you yeah. also have another one. It's called Teeming with Nutrients. Right. Tell me about that one and how it differs. Well, <laughs> let's see. The first book, Teeming, Teeming with Microbes, was basically how do plants get their food the second book is how the plants actually eat their food and what do they do once they do. And so it's a different kind of book. Uh, the first book is about microbiology. The second book involves, un- unfortunately, a little bit of chemistry, cellular biology, and botany. And so I, I have to teach myself that and the reader. And uh, basically we go through how, how, how plants eat which is a fascinating story. I, I didn't have any idea. Uh, and, and if you're going to follow the debate with regard to glyphosate, for example, you've got to know these things. You have, to know, you have to know how plants take up food and what exactly they need and why they need it. It's not just they, you know, nitrogen grows leaves, uh, boron grows flowers. Why? Why? Uh, once you know why, then you know how much <laughs> and when. And you get a much better idea, again, what's happening in your plants. And, and what happened to me when I finished the book is that I had an understanding of, of my plants uh, to the point that now when I'm outside working in the garden, I'm completely blown away, uh, you know, by these organisms that I'm working with. I mean, when you look at a tree, it's hard to imagine that it contains 
30 trillion cells. 30 trillion cells. This is a number you can't even really comprehend. But each and every one of those cells is connected in a way that if you miniaturized yourself and got into a little canoe, you could canoe from one cell to the other without ever hitting a wall. Huh? How does that happen? So you can go from the root all the way up to the top of the plant in this, you know, inter interconnected waterway uh, in, in through these cells. It's actually amazing. Uh, if you're not the right kind of molecule, you can't get through the cells. Uh, there are all these unbelievable little proteins that are that are designed as tunnels that are put into cell walls. So each of these 30 trillion cells in a in a tree outside your window has these little teeny holes in them that let in individual on only one kind of nutrient. So only zinc can get in one kind of tunnel. Only potassium can get into the into another tunnel. Wow! It's just you know it's things we kind of knew but didn't really know, and when you sit down and finally learn and you go, holy cromoly, plants are unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. I'm looking out my window at a bald cypress and just imagining all of this, you know, because you look at the tree and, yes, it's got very delicate leaves, but you look at the trunk of the tree and to imagine everything that's going on in that oh the trunk. God, yeah. So let's take one of those cells, and there's 30 trillion of them in that tree. In that trunk, in one of those cells, there are 10,000 different kinds of enzymes. Not 10,000 enzymes, but 10,000 different kinds of enzymes bumping around inside a cell that is so small you can't even comprehend its size. Wow. There's a whole world going on in there. There's there's railroads. There are uh, telephone wires. There's television, you know, transmission going on. It's unbelievable what happens in the cell. And, and we just walk by and we're blasé about it. <laughs> you know, we love the flowers. But how did that flower get there? What role did boron play? If you didn't have one molecule of boron, you wouldn't have that flower. One molecule. Wow. It's amazing. So, so, so while the first book was very practical uh, and very useful in terms of you've got to know this stuff, the second book, it's useful and it's practical. But, but to know it makes gardening more beautiful in a way. Uh, and, again, that's sort of corny, but that's really what it does. The take-home of the second book is, is, is the beauty of, of, of how these things work. And test your soils. Plants only need 18 elements. You've got to make sure they get them all, and the only way you can know they're getting them all is to actually test your soil, and virtually no gardeners test their soil. <laughs> they say they do, but they don't, and we all need to do that. And that's the take-home for teaming with nutrients. Now, tell me, about the, tell me about this soil test. Does it, our state of Georgia, analysis, you know, it doesn't do nitrogen because, of course, that fluctuates during the growing season, um, but it does uh, phosphorus, potassium, boron, and, and several other, zinc, and, and several other things. Um, is there something more that should be in there? And where well, I like to go to get it, because I know a lot of people just get a little soil test kit that does NPK. Yeah, and I don't really like those kits very much for two reasons. One is NPK are usually not the problems. 
you know, the, and second, they're they're you know, if your hands are dirty, your implements dirty, etc. I think you got to go to a professional. And when you go to a professional, what you can get back from the professional is not only the test results, but recommendations as to what you can do to bring your numbers to where they need to be. And, and so, uh, you know, if the state state of Georgia doesn't do that, the university system and most university systems do, then you need to find a private lab, and there are many of them, and there are many in Georgia, uh, that will actually tell, your, tell you what you need to add to your soil to make it better. And, and you need to be able to tell them that you're organic. You want to know what the organic additions should be. And then you need to test your soil in three or four years to make sure that you're, or actually two years to make sure that it's trending in the right direction, and you're done. You know, you're spending you're spending a little bit of money, maybe you know thirty, forty bucks uh, for the two tests, twenty five bucks a piece. But gosh, you're spending a lot of money on buying NPK without even knowing what your numbers are. People just need your put down fertilizer. They throw down Miracle Grow because you know that Scottish guy comes on TV and he says, "Yeah, have you put it?" You know, I mean, and he tells you to do it, and you do it. But you got to have, have a test. he does have a he does have a cute accent though. You got to admit that Scotty does have a cute accent. I know Georgia they do give Georgia does give recommendations um, of of how much you need to add and when, and they also will give you organic recommendations if you request. And Georgia also has a good book that's available online for gardeners in other states where they don't have it that gives you the organic. Uh, tells you how to, to switch it over to the organic equivalents if you don't have it. Um, is there any one particular lab that you work with that you like? Or? Well, I like a guy, a guy named Neil Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-Y. And, and the name of his lab just for some reason went right out of my mind. But if you Google Neil Kinsey, N-E-A-L-K-I-N-S-E-Y, he's about as good as it gets. He's, he's uh, all Brechtian, uh, you know, and he's, he's, he's quite good, and, and he knows his chemistry and his biology as well. And, and, and it's both. It used to be just chemistry, but really it's biology and, and the combination of the two. And so, uh, but, but everybody should at least, even if it's just the state of Georgia, and they do a great job, it, just get your soil tested. You've got to do it. Don't buy any fertilizer or compost or anything until you test your soil. You might not need it. Yeah, and in, in most of the east eastern states, and I don't know whether that's a problem up in Alaska, but people have been throwing down so much phosphorus in their lawn fertilizer for so many years, um, and right. that it's a, a pollution problem. It's a terrible pollution problem, and some states have banned fertilizers containing phosphate uh, right. just about completely. Well, in fact, I believe that Scotts has taken it out of its uh, lawn food, and uh, we're, we're reaching peak phosphate. That's going to be the first element we're going to run out of. We're reaching peak phosphate. In the next 30, 40 years, we're going to run out of phosphate. And, and, and so there again, there's another reason why people need to be using mycorrhizal fungi, which you can now buy at all nurseries. When you put a seed in the ground, you should roll it in mycorrhizal fungi. When you transplant anything in the soil, you should sprinkle mycorrhizal fungi on the roots. Uh, they have to get the exudates in order to live uh, because the mycorrhizal fungi can go out and get the naturally locked up phosphates for you. So it's not in your lawn food? Great, not a problem. Put it, the mycorrhizal fungi in your lawn. You only have to do it once. It'll get its own phosphate. You don't have to supply it, period. So, so there are some great reasons to be reading these books. You're going to save a lot of money. That's what I always tell people. Now, um, what about compost tea? Compost tea. Very I hear a lot about compost. 
Yeah, yeah, and and it's very controversial. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first to admit that one of the problems with compost tea, and, I, and I'm a big believer in it. And just so that we know what we're talking about, this is not your grandmother's tea where you know you had manure and you put it in a in a, in a barrel with water, and then you know you sent your grandson out to <laughs> to get it in four weeks when it stank like crazy. <laughs> this is this is compost, good compost that you put into water, a handful into maybe five gallons of water, and then you aerate it like crazy with uh, uh, an air pump. That strips out the bacteria, the fungus, the nematodes, and the protozoa that, that we've been talking about in this feeding cycle. And it, and it, it increases their numbers because you put a little food in the, in the water. And then you use that as a drench to water your plants or as a spray to spray the leaves of your plants. Now, it, it is very controversial because to duplicate results is difficult. And so there are many studies that say absolutely makes no difference whether you use compost or compost tea, whether you use miracle Grow or compost tea, there's no difference, blah, blah, blah. There are some studies that say it does make a difference. All I can tell you is when I use it at home, and that's all I use, I don't use miracle Grow or any of that stuff, I get phenomenal results. I use it on my lawn. I use it on my vegetables. I use it on my houseplants. Um, it costs about 50 cents a gallon. Uh, you can't use too much of it. You can make a bacterially dominated tea or a fungally dominated tea, just as you can make a bacterially dominated compost or a fungally dominated compost. And what I tell people is if you don't want to use compost tea, and they're using it all around the country in places you've been to, like the Shedd Aquarium uses it, uh, the Alaska Botanical Garden uses it, the New York Botanical Garden uses it, Harvard College University uses it when you park your car at Harvard Harvard Yard, you're parking your car on a compost teed yard. Uh, so, so it's it's controversial, but it seems to be very useful. Sigfrid <laughs> and Roy used it to get rid of the odor uh, in their lion pens, as does the Oregon Zoo. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. So, so yeah. Uh, but what I tell people is, if you don't believe in compost tea, great. Use compost instead. It's got everything the compost tea has in it. Not quite as high in numbers, but um, so there you go. <laughs> and you recommend uh, and that people you, make make their own compost tea rather than going out and buying it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. For two reasons. One is that it, it, it you know it's live and it uses up the oxygen in the container, and so after about four or five hours, you know you're dimin- you're getting diminishing amounts of life. Uh, but two, you want to use your own compost. It's got all the indigenous things that are uh, microbes that are in the area. Uh, and and uh, it, first of all, encourages you to make compost, and second of all, it makes makes great compost tea. And if you're going to buy a system, the system I like is made by a company called Simplicity, S I M P L I hyphen T E A, and you can look up K I S compost tea, Kiss compost tea, keep it simple compost tea. It's a very I'll be putting system. that up on there. Yeah, you uh, we need to take a very quick break right now, but uh, we'll be back right after this. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's 
Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel, and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and with me today is Jeff Lowenfels, author of Teeming with Microbes. Um, and uh, he's, we're talking about compost tea, and I'll be putting that information. Uh, Jeff can send it to me, and I'll put it up on our Facebook page so that you don't have to, everybody doesn't have to go and Google. Um, but we're talking about you grow, you make compost out of your own. Um, compost because it's local and it's got your local microbes. What if people don't have their own compost? Should they go out and buy a bag of it? Or Yeah, yeah, but make sure it's good compost. And how do you know whether it's good compost? Well, it's got to have a good seal from the composting council. It should smell good. If your compost doesn't smell good, it's not compost. It's putrefying material. Um, and, and, and you really shouldn't be able to identify the things that went in the compost, you know. If you open the bag up and it's got, a, you know, the arm of a sweater in it, that's not good compost. <laughs> uh, if you can see the leaves, it's, it's, it's mulch, but it's, but it's not good compost. So, yeah, you've got to make sure you get good compost. And compost is, is so important because it's the best thing you can use in your garden. The best gardens in the world use only compost. Why? Because compost contains the bacteria and the fungi attracted by those exudates, and it all and I call those the fertilizer bags. But it also contains the nematodes and the protozoa that eat the fungi and the bacteria and release the nutrients that they contain. So it's got the fertilizer spreaders in it too. And good compost has tremendous numbers of both. That's why it works so well. And you don't have to rototill it in. You put a quarter of an inch, eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch, and a quarter of an inch is a lot, on the surface of the soil, the activity of the soil food web will work that in 18 inches down in about eight months. So you don't have to till it in. It'll get in by itself. That's incredible. Uh, it, yeah. Compost, people, some people think composting is really difficult, but it isn't, is it? No. And there's two ways you can do it. You can do it the easy way, which is just called coal composting. This is how a lot of people do it inadvertently. They get leaves. They push them off to the side of the road. They put them under bushes. They put them in a big pile. They leave them there, and two years later, they come back as compost. How does that happen? Well, that's what nature does. The other way you can do it is you can add in something green to those leaves. It could be grass clippings. If you don't have grass clippings, you can go out and buy a 50-pound bag of alfalfa meal. Uh, you mix that in, and the bacteria in that green stuff heats 
does, it does so much eating that it heats itself in a pile up, and all sorts of other things start to start to work. And the next thing you know, you turn it after four or five days, you turn it again after four or five days, and you get the feel you're making compost. And after about four or five weeks, you got compost, which is phenomenal. I always enjoyed the process. Back Way back when, I was a, a real hot composting fan, and if I could get the temperature of the pile up to 160 in the middle of it, I was just joy oh, yeah. for joy. Now well, I'm kind of a lazy important. composter. I just, you know, I've got a, a ring of hog wire, and I throw things in, and especially in the fall, you can start with, um, you're mixing your leaves and grass clippings, um, and, and just start with that, and then add all your kitchen waste to it afterwards. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you've got to make sure that really that all of it gets to 160 degrees because you get E. coli and stuff. So home home compost piles that uh, that uh, you know often have E. coli in it. They have to be turned uh, so that the outside gets to the inside, and and that's very very important. Sometimes we get a little lazy and and we don't do that. So, so if you're going to do the hot stuff, you got to do it. If you're going to do cold stuff, that's different. But you got to really do the turning. That's, that's my only advice to people who are listening on that one. <laughs> now, where's that E. coli coming from? Well, you know, E. coli is everywhere. So it's, you know, it's in dog poop that you rake up on the leaves. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's in the air. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not all of it's bad, 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 but it's there. Uh, and, and so you want to make sure that you get up to 180, 160 degrees because that's the temperature where things are safe. And get rid of the listeria. Any, anything that may be there that's, that's, that's not good for you will be gone at 160 degrees. Okay. Jeff, our, our readers may have heard of Plantaro for Hungary, but I don't know that they know. Well, they've heard it from me anyway, um, but I don't think our listeners know how that started. Will you no. tell us about that? Yeah. I always uh, hate to tell a story, but... Uh, I, I, I am a garden writer uh, by, by hobby, now by profession, I guess, but I was a lawyer and I was working on a very big project that took me from Alaska to Washington, D.C., uh, probably about twice a week, uh, twice a month. And I stayed at a very, very fancy hotel in Washington, D.C., you know, where the famous people stay and the uh, diplomats, et cetera. And, you know, and, and I, was, I was at that hotel so many times that, that I was very well known and I would, I would have fruit baskets in my room and bottles of wine left by the manager and all that kind of stuff because I spent a lot of money at this place. One day I happened to be there during the coldest spell they ever had in Washington, D.C. history. Uh, it ended up being a week. They closed the airport down. Uh, nobody could get in and out. The only people allowed in the downtown Washington were the workers at restaurants and hotels to take care of the people who were stuck there. Uh, and I remember going to a restaurant at night with my hand in my pocket because it was so cold, wrapped around some coins, and a gentleman came up to me and said, could I, could I have some money? I need something to eat. I'm starving to death. And they say in Washington, D.C., they have signs everywhere, don't feed the poor, we have our own systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so I said no to the guy. And he said to me, I'm really hungry. Come with me. I'm not going to get drugs. I'm not going to get booze. You can sit and watch me eat. And I still said no. And then I went back to my hotel, and I had a fruit basket, uh, and I had a bottle of wine, and I didn't have just a chocolate on my on my uh, pillow. I had a box of chocolate on my pillows, and I went to bed that night, and whoa, I did not sleep well. I saw that guy. Whew, it was terrible. Anyway, next morning I got up, and I tried to find him. Uh, I wandered around town. I couldn't find him, and I, I had a plane. I, I, I had to take it at 3 o'clock. The airport's opened up, and Flying out first class, sitting uh, there over Seattle, 
writing a garden column, eating steak and zucchini, it occurred to me that I really was a bad guy, and I should have given that guy some money, and I felt awful, and, and I decided to write a column about it. And, and the zucchini inspired me, because in Wisconsin and probably Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, you don't leave your car outside on the street unlocked in the summertime, because if you do in the morning, you, you, you get to the car and you open it up, and it's full of someone else's zucchini. So I wrote an article, and I said, geez, you know, we all have extra stuff. Let's harvest uh, one row in our garden, and let's bring it to the food cafe, the, the soup kitchen in Anchorage. And I wrote this column, and it was very successful, and, and we got tremendous amounts of food. It was called Plant a Row for Beans. It was Bean Soup Kitchen. And we did this for a year. It was very successful. Uh, I only woke up, you know, every, every other night seeing this guy's face instead of every night. And the garden writers had their convention in Anchorage the following year. We told them about the program, and... Something happened, and we adopted it as a nation, nationwide program, and now we've collected something like 25 million pounds of food out of people's gardens like mine and yours. Nothing slips from the cup to the lip. No government money, no, no interference. You grow the food. You take it to a soup kitchen, a food bank, a neighbor, a church. Someone who needs it. Great program. Great program. It is a wonderful program. Um, I, I try to get people interested, and I go around with my little planter row stake markers and when I Amen. give talks and, and hand yeah. them out at church and things like that. And one thing yeah. a lot of people don't know is that you don't have to bring a whole bushel basket full no. of food to your food no. bank. I think a lot of people are, are kind of afraid because they think that what they have isn't worthy, and that is not true. They need no. food. Just even right. even sometimes I'll have just a couple of cucumbers, a few extra yeah. tomatoes, and I take them over to our local food bank. And one year, a little lady came up to me after I'd brought in cucumbers for a couple of weeks, and she whispered something to the man that was doing the food distribution, and he nodded, and and she came over to me and gave, gave me a great big hug because yeah. she had gotten one of the cucumbers. And she had been a gardener before, and she just wanted, it was so wonderful to her to have a cucumber that was freshly grown. Isn't grown-up. that a cool? Yeah. What amazing. So what don't, amazing. People, yeah. yeah. Amazing. It, it is just absolutely wonderful. And gardeners share anyway. I mean, that's the thing about gardening. We share information. Look what we're doing right now. I mean, we're, we're talking about information and how to do things. That's what gardeners do. We share. There are 36 million people who went to bed last night hungry. That's unbelievably unacceptable. And, you know, we, we complain about our politicians and their do-nothing Congress. Well, you know what? There's something we can do. We're gardeners. We run this country. We can solve this problem. And we're doing it, and we need help. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a great program. And thank you so much, Jeff, for, for starting that program, even if it was well, out of guilt. I hope that guy gets fed. I hope that guy got fed. That's all I can say. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And, and, and all of us do the same thing. We all walk by people, you know. Uh, this is how you help. And, and, and it'll be a, a greater world as a result of gardening. And that's all we really should aim for, I think. <laughs> well, it's better than um, chemicals for better living. Oh, you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and what a great show you run. So this is on every week. And, and, on every Saturday uh, and, and podcasted. 
Wow. So so if people miss the show on Saturday, if they miss us today, they can just go to the website, America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and and the podcasts go up for um, usually on Monday, and they're up for eight weeks. And they can get them on iTunes, too. So, so we can spread the word around. We've got just a little bit uh, less than three sure. minutes here. Jeff, what, sure. what other subject would you like to touch on? Well, I, you know, I think it's really important that people uh, do, do grow their stuff organically, uh, whether they read teaming with microbes or teaming with nutrients doesn't make a bit of difference. What does make a difference is that they grow their food without using chemicals. And, and to, to do so is to make not only the environment better, to make the family health better, uh, you know, but but just just to to make gardening a better experience, you don't have to resort to this magical mystery stuff when you've got uh, science and nature at your hands. Uh, so I would encourage people be organic, understand what you're doing, and you'll get a much greater enjoyment out of out of gardening. And people don't have to just go out and buy organic equivalent of pesticides, do they? Heck no. No, they don't. Uh, if you're a good organic gardener, you will need pesticides because your system, the system, the soil food web system, will take care of things naturally. The natural enemies will take care of the bad guys. It's fascinating. I, I went organic um, probably, well, it was right after I read Silent Spring, so it was in the 70s, early 70s. Right. And I... I just can't get over how much the garden has changed. And when we moved here 30 years ago, the soil, they had been using a lot of chemicals, and so it was pretty barren. But now I can go out to my garden and grab that handful of soil and know that there's life in it. Isn't it incredible? It's something special. It is something special, and, and uh, you know, it's the basis of all of our gardening, and, and, and that's why gardening is so special. You know, it's all of these things we learn and all of the stuff that, that supports our terrific hobby. It's really, and things like your terrific show, and I, I want to thank you for having me on. Well, thank you, Jeff. I just want to remind people that I'll be putting uh, the titles of Jeff's book and the soil testing and some other other things that we talked about. I'll be putting that up on our Facebook page. And if you have any questions, you can ask them through the Facebook page, too. And Jeff's books are Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web. And, um, and the other one is... Teaming with oh, nutrients. Yeah, just, the teaming with nutrients. Yeah, yeah. The organic gardener's guide to optimizing plant nutrition. How's that for a mouthful? <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of a mouthful. But but what do you expect from Jeff Lowenfels? <laughs> no, no, that's Jeff, a you, <laughs> you were always fun, Jeff, and uh, I thank you very much for being with us. And we'll be back next week with America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, a most eclectic mix of conservative shows.